Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here for the latest episode of the Language Hacking Podcast, along with my co-host, Benny Lewis. And in this episode of the podcast, we're talking to the founder of Language Mastery and author, John Fotheringham. In our conversation with John, we talk about things like learning difficult languages, such as Mandarin and Japanese, how to immerse yourself in a language at home, learning languages through activities that you love, living abroad, how to choose language learning tools and methods suited to you personally, fun ways to learn languages, and what it's like experiencing languages as a learner, teacher, and mentor. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, you can let us know what you think by leaving us a review over at languagehacking.com slash review. We always appreciate hearing from you. Now, let's get into our chat with John. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 87. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm your host, Benny Lewis, joined with Shannon Kennedy. And today we are interviewing John Fotheringham. So John, uh, he runs Language Mastery, a website and a whole uh, series of things like podcasts. And he's been into languages for a very long time. I've collaborated with him on multiple projects. And I especially have uh, promoted his uh, Japanese mastery course multiple times throughout the history of the Fluent in Three Months blog. So I really wanted to have him on the podcast to hear his story so, John, without further ado, let's kick things off and you can give us your perspective on how you got into languages and how that led to you growing your whole uh, online language career. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's an honor. Um, yeah, we've known each other for years and years, and I, I was really excited to see when you kicked off your podcast because I, I just I like uh, this format a lot. It gives more room to have real conversations. So... Yeah, I, my background originally actually was in um, industrial design, of all things, in university. But I happened to take a linguistics 101 class just as a general university requirement. And that just infected my brain. I just fell in love instantly. And so I was toast once I took that class. And I just found languages so fascinating. Um, and then I ended up getting into Japanese and Mandarin and kind of a smattering of other languages along the way, but those are kind of the two ones I've, I've focused on. Language Mastery came along in 2009. I was living in Taiwan at the time, and I was teaching English by day and was really frustrated with a lot of the mainstream ways that languages are taught and learned, and I needed an outlet to vent that frustration, and so Language Mastery was born. So let's talk a little bit about your experience learning your languages. I know that your two are Japanese and Chinese. Of course, you've studied other languages than that, but those are the kind of the primary two you said you settled on. Why those languages? What drew you to them? And how did you go about learning them? Because they're often, they often get the reputation as some of the most difficult languages to learn, and you've learned not one, but two of them. So Japanese came along during university. I actually had some friends that were from Japan that were exchange students at my university. Uh, I was learning martial arts at the time. And in my martial arts class, there were a couple of the Japanese exchange students that we became fast friends. And since I was also studying linguistics, I thought, hey, it'd be kind of cool if I could speak a little bit with them in Japanese. So I started to learn Japanese there. But as many know, the classroom is not 
often the ideal way uh, or place to learn a language well. Fortunately, I realized very quickly that I could advance a lot more quickly if I focused most of my time outside of the class, actually communicating with native speakers. Ah, surprise, right? And I, I realized very quickly that I was, I was progressing a lot more quickly, even though I was going to class a lot less often <laughs> than a lot of the other people. I still did well enough on, on the exams and things, probably did better than I would have had I just gone to class, ironically. And so that, that really set the foundation, I think, for how I approach languages from then on and also how I advocate learning languages now through language mastery. I really do believe that a self-guided approach tends to be a lot more effective. I do think a class or a textbook or, or some kind of structure can be helpful for some people. I'm not going to say they're bad across the board. I, I really think it comes down to one's preferences and learning style. I mean, there are some advantages and disadvantages to uh, to both. I mean, learning on your own has its own, own challenges too. So I'm not going to argue that it's a panacea. But yeah, that really set the foundation. And then Mandarin came a little bit later. I actually, so right after university, I went to Japan, lived there two years. I can talk more about that later. But it was a few years after that, uh, I had basically a free reign to do what I wanted. I was kind of between careers. And I was like, what do I want to do? And I thought, I'll go to China. Uh, so I went to mainland China first, traveled around a couple of weeks, and then wasn't really what I was looking for. But I had heard great things about Taiwan across the strait there. And so I flew over to Taiwan and ended up being there almost five years off and on. It was exactly what I was looking for. So a little pro tip to those that are wanting to learn Mandarin. Uh, I know a lot of people who have had a much more enjoyable time doing so in, in Taiwan as opposed to mainland China. Yeah, that was my experience too, that when I finally got around to Mandarin, I definitely enjoyed doing so in Taiwan more, more than I did in mainland China. So I would agree with you on that. But of course, not, not everybody can travel like you and me have done to learn the languages in the country. And you've got a list of do's and don'ts that you mention on your websites. And one of them is that you don't have to move abroad to learn a language. So uh, especially for those Asian languages that people really feel like you're only going to get a, a truly good learning experience if you're in those countries what would you say to people who have that mindset and what are the workarounds? Yeah, it's a little bit ironic that you and I both, I think, often advocate you don't have to go abroad, even though we both have. And, and I mean, look, it's, it's an amazing advantage in some ways. It's obviously really fun to be able to travel and do these adventures, but it's just not mandatory. I think that's the key. And especially during this pandemic, uh, it just simply wasn't an option for most people. But even now, as travel, I think, is going to be opening up more, hopefully, knock on wood, it's really not necessary. And there are actually some arguments against going abroad too early, because what happens when you move abroad to a country, it, even if your primary goal is learning the language, you have so many other practical demands on your time and things that you want to you want to do and need to do, you know, you need to eat, right? You need to get around, you need to have some modicum of a social life. And if you don't speak the language yet, those things are very difficult, if not darn near impossible. So I actually think it's much, much more effective to spend a good chunk of time learning and immersing yourself in the language right at home. And that way, when you do end up going abroad, you can hit the ground running and really enjoy the experience instead of just having to survive. So then you can actually thrive, you know, because you have enough language. So how do you do that? That's a big part of what I, I spend my time writing about and talking about is how to immerse yourself anywhere in the world. I call it anywhere immersion or 
modern immersion or digital immersion. They're kind of different ways you can describe it. But with the technology we now have today, I mean, right now, here we are in three different places having a conversation. Well, you could easily do that just in one of your target languages using any of the amazing tutoring sites and exchange sites they have. You know, you can watch if you're learning Japanese, right? You could go on Netflix and watch a Japanese TV series or a movie. You can change the display language on your phones and devices so you're getting reading input. You can read Wikipedia articles in your target languages. I mean, this, the, the list goes on and on and on. There's really uh, almost too many things. It's the real challenge nowadays is like limiting things down to just a few primary resources so you don't get overwhelmed. One thing I want to say, you earlier talked about, I think, Shannon, you mentioned how people often think of Japanese and, and Chinese specifically as being really hard languages. And one thing I wanted to argue is that, yes, they are very different than English and other Romance languages and uh, Indo-European languages. But I refuse to say that different equals difficult. This could be semantics. This could just be a philosophical debate. But I think how you frame a language really affects your ability to learn that language. So even if it's not true, even if, or even is true that these languages are more difficult, at least they probably take more time, that I will admit that. And then a lot of, you know, it's probably gonna take you more time to reach a B2 level in Japanese or Mandarin than it will in Spanish or French. But so what? Who cares? It just depends what language you want to learn. People often ask me, you know, what's the easiest language to learn? I say the one you want to learn. <laughs> That's the easiest one. The hardest one's gonna be the one that you don't want to learn, that you think you have to learn or that you're being mandated to learn. You know, when I was in Japan and Taiwan, one of the things that really broke my heart is seeing all of these people being forced to learn English. And so many would develop kind of a hatred for the language because it was forced upon them. And the way that they went about having to learn back to that classroom thing, you know, it was just rote memorization, test, 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 memorize, regurgitate. That's it. No communication practice, no context, no cultural context for it. It was just information. And a language is not information. You know, a language is not a math equation. A language is people and is a way to communicate with other people. And so if you take the people out of it, it's like, what's the point? Anyway, I'm on a rant. I'll stop. <laughs> so I want to go back to kind of discussing immersion. And we three all do it and kind of know ways to immerse ourselves at home. But for someone who maybe is unfamiliar with at-home immersion or anywhere immersion, what are some of the best ways to increase your exposure and immerse yourself in a language at home? So I can go to specifics in just a moment. I think it's good to start with a basic high level principle, which is look around your environment, wherever you spend your time each day, whether it's at home, at work, in the car, the gym, wherever, wherever you spend your days and your, your hours, you want to make sure that as much as possible, everything that you are hearing and seeing is in that target language as much as possible. Now, obviously, some locations you can control better than others. Uh, so those that you can control well, you know, do everything in your power to do that, to make everything in that target language. So how do you do that? Well, I mentioned some already. So one of the, I think, most impactful, but can also be one of the most frustrating, depending on your level of the language, is changing the device display languages. And that means your computer, that means your phone, that means even things like Apple TV, Google TV, Google Assistant, Alexa, everything, uh, Google Maps, Apple Maps, right? You can get turn-by-turn -turn navigations instructions in that target language. So as you're driving to the, the store, you can be hearing 
Japanese. You can be hearing Mandarin. You can be hearing Spanish. You can talk to your devices. This is, I think, a really underappreciated part of changing the device languages. If you change the language of Siri, Google Assistant, Alexa, you can then ask questions. You can give commands in the target language. And so then you're not just practicing vocabulary. You're also practicing grammar, for example. Command form in a lot of languages it can be tricky. So you're both getting the command form, so you're listening practice there, and then you're giving the command form to the devices. Like, you know, remind me to get milk when I leave the house. What is the weather today? Tell me the weather. What's on my schedule today? Things like that. Other things, I think it's really important to make the target language as convenient as possible and make your native language as inconvenient as possible. Gretchen Rubin calls this the strategy of convenience and inconvenience. So you want to have sort of red carpets to the language and you want to have sort of velvet ropes between you and your native language. Because when you're tired, when you're stressed, right, you're going to default to whatever is comfortable and easy. And the target language is often not that. So you want to make it as easy as possible. So what can you do? Things like make sure that every TV show that's in your watch next queue on Netflix or YouTube or whatever is only target language content. Don't allow any native language content into those queues. Make sure that in your browser, make sure that all the bookmarks that are in the bookmarks bar are only to you know foreign language content, foreign language dictionaries, things like that. If you know, you can hide stuff that you need in a folder so it's not immediately visible. On your device, make sure that the home screen of your device is only foreign language apps, flashcards, things like that. So that when you open it up, you're seeing first and foremost just the stuff that you want to be focusing on. Then put the other apps on a second page or a third page, things like that. So just again, make make it easy, make it convenient. Absolutely. And I, I, I want to go back to what you were just saying before that I really like how you frame this, that uh, it's better to think of these Asian languages as simply different and not necessarily difficult. And I've collaborated with you in the past to have like guest posts on my blog and such to go as far as to try to reframe why a language like Japanese is easy. So I would love if, if you could share some of your thoughts on that, because obviously it's very easy to, to give a list. Well, Japanese is hard because of this, this and this. And I don't think it's ever discussed enough why these languages are easy. So could you dive into uh, especially Japanese, but if you like a bit of Mandarin of why you would present these languages in a different light to somebody who feels discouraged? The, the older I get, the more and more I think most things that matter are very, very nuanced. And so I, I would never just say Japanese is easy, full stop, or Mandarin is easy, full stop. But nor would I say it's difficult, period, full stop, right? There are elements of all languages that are going to be more or less challenging, depending on your native language, depending on your experience with other foreign languages. So with Japanese specifically, there is a host of things that actually, especially compared with a language like Spanish or something, are quite refreshingly simple or easy or intuitive. So what are some of those things? So for one thing, if you happen to speak English, and if you're listening to this podcast, I assume you do, Japanese has borrowed thousands and thousands and thousands of words from English into Japanese. And so from day one, ding, 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 you won the linguistic lottery, you already can, I'm, I'm putting air quotes here for the, <laughs> those listening, you can already understand or uh, dare you use the word speak some Japanese. Now, granted, the pronunciation of these words can be quite different, but it's predictable. There's a predictable pattern of how 
English words are sort of Japanified. And so if you learn that pattern, then when in doubt, and I use this all the time, if there is a word I actually don't know in Japanese, some kind of technical term, I will say the English word in a Japanese way, and almost always I will be understood. Even if they don't actually use that word in Japanese, this is what's really cool. Because when they learn English, they will usually put these little katakana, little uh, pronunciation guides in katakana, one of the Japanese syllabaries, over the English words, which is terrible for their English, but it's great for our ability to communicate in Japanese. So, so that's a great advantage. That's, I mean, out of the gate, you have a, a massive vocabulary, basically. Other things that are really nice or, or comparatively simple, you don't have to agree between pronouns and nouns by gender, by, by grammatical gender, like you do in a lot of romance languages. They don't have that. Um, in fact, you can often leave off subjects and even objects when you're speaking. So if somebody asks me, did you eat the cake? I can say, tabita, like I ate it. You know, the I and the cake are implied from context. So I can just say the verb. You also don't have to match the pronoun and the verb ending. You know, I ate, you ate, we ate, they ate. It's all the same form of the verb. So that's a huge advantage compared to something like Spanish where you see these, you know, conjugation tables that go for for days. So other things, the pronunciation is fairly intuitive and, and simple. They do have something called pitch accent, which I don't want to get too far into the weeds on that can be a little tricky to learn, but it's not tonal. So compared to learning something like Mandarin, Japanese does not have those distinctions uh, in the same way. Occasionally, there'll be some differentiations in meaning based on on pitch accent. For the most part, it's completely clear from context. So even if you butcher the the pitch accent, you'll sound foreign, but you'll be understood most of the time. So that's that's a big advantage. Uh, for Mandarin, it is a tonal language, and so that can be tricky. But one of the cool things is that the word order is pretty close. It's mostly subject, verb, object, just like English, SVO. So, you know, I drink coffee in Mannered would be basically the same thing. coffee. It's the same, basically, I drink coffee. Unlike Japanese. So again, I mean, I can always make lists of what is hard, and what's easy, but let's focus on, at least in the beginning, what is easy, because that'll get you going. The hard will come later, right? Other things, so this is between both those languages. If you learn Chinese characters, one of the cool things is that if you start in Japanese or you start in Mandarin, you'll be able to read a lot between the two languages. So that's a nice advantage. There are differences. So uh, in mainland China, they use so-called simplified characters, whereas in Taiwan and Hong Kong, they use so-called traditional characters. The traditional ones are a little bit more visually complex. That doesn't actually mean they're more difficult. I actually argue often on the contrary. I think the there's more, you can use more story-based, learning more mnemonics with the traditional characters, I think, because there's more there to play with. So somewhat counterintuitively, they're, I think, a little bit easier to learn. Uh, Japan kind of uses a mix or somewhere in between the two. They have simplified some characters sort of naturally over, over a long period of time, but they didn't go in and, and you know mandate simplification like they did in mainland China in, in the late 40s, early 50s. But for the most part, if you can read the characters, you can. it's sort of a written lingua franca where you can sort of decipher both languages if you can read them well. Meanings can be different. Pronunciations are obviously quite different, but let's not uh, look a linguistic gift horse in the mouth, as it were.
So I want to go back to something that you had mentioned earlier. And I think, you know, knowing me that I was going to bring this up at some point, because it's something that we have in common. But given that you're really focused on like an at-home immersion approach and you enjoy things like martial arts. What are some of the ways that you combine these activities that you love doing with your languages? Yeah, that's a really good question and something that definitely has has been a huge part of my life and I do advocate to others is try to learn the language via a activity that you love because it creates context and especially something like martial arts that's physical a physical context is super powerful and it's a much, much easier way, I think, to learn because it's visual. You know what's happening because it's right there in front of your face. But also we tend to remember things better when there's a physical component, when you're moving your body um, for whatever reason. There's even a whole uh, branch of, of language teaching called total physical response, TPR, where they integrate physical movement to help people remember. This is usually applied in in ESL in English um, language teaching, but works for any any language. And why not do it yourself? So even if you're at home, you could try to add in a little bit of a physical component when you're doing your learning. I mean, um, something as simple as just walking, walking while you're while you're learning. If you're going to listen to a podcast, for example, go walk. Just that actual act of moving your legs for whatever reason seems to really help. But if you can. Definitely doing something, a class, you know, whether it's martial arts, flower arrangement, uh, you know, yoga, uh, you know, learning the guitar, drawing. It doesn't really matter what the thing is, but creating a physical, clear context for it. I just think it makes it so much easier. And it's just fun. That's the biggest thing. You know, if it's fun, you're going to do it. Fun gets done. So along the same lines as immersing yourself with something like martial arts, you've actually spent so much time living, learning and working in those countries like Japan, Bangladesh, China, Taiwan. And I'd love to hear if knowing the local language has given you any really rich memories from these travels that you otherwise would not have had if you were just traveling through English. It's night and day. I mean, it, it is a different experience. Um, I forget the anecdote, but there was some ancient king in somewhere, maybe a Sumeria or something, I forget. He sent two envoys to two different cities, or so you think. And then they had he had them report back and explain, you know, what was going on in these places. And they gave these two wildly different accounts. You know, the one guy said, Oh, this city's great. The people are wonderful. Uh, they have a rich culture and a history, and they're kind and they're pleasant, and I can't wait to go back. And then the other envoy said, Oh. The other, you're lucky you, I went to this other place. It was awful. You know, the people were rude. I, I hated every minute of it and I never want to go back again. And then the king revealed, actually, I sent you to the same city. The difference was their attitudes about what that city was like. And so I, I think speaking of foreign languages is a lot like that, where if you can speak the local language, you're going to unlock doors that you don't even see if you don't speak that language. The analogy I always like to use is that it's like having uh, scuba gear. If you don't speak the local language. You can, yeah, you can poke your head under the water and you can look around a little bit, but you can't stay down there. You only see what's above the surface. But with the local language, it's like having scuba gear. You can swim down as far as you want to go, as far as you want to keep learning. You can go, go, go down. And you see that, oh, this is actually, it's an iceberg or probably more accurately, it's an island that goes all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. So some examples of things, first thing that comes to mind, I was at a, it was a teacher training 
center in Japan for the new uh, English teachers who were coming into the the prefecture where I was working. We were going to be training them up on what they'd be doing. And I remember at night, there was a small group of us who could speak some Japanese. We ended up befriending the staff basically at this center who in Japan, they were kind of the the main staff that was part of the, the government we were with there. Didn't really treat them that well, kind of looked down on them. I think us maybe being foreign, there was less of a, maybe a power distance is the right word for it. We ended up becoming fast friends with the staff and we were staying up till, you know, midnight or so. We were there. He was put the head cook guy there. He played the guitar and he was playing the guitar, singing Japanese songs. All of us, you know, having some, uh, imbibing some, some local Japanese, uh, uh, adult beverages and and singing and just having the most amazing time. And none of that would have happened, I think, had we not had Japanese as the means to communicate. I mean, yeah, we could have been polite to each other and, and nodded our heads and used hand gestures, but that experience would never have happened without, without the language. Bunny had mentioned some of the do's and don'ts on your website earlier. And one of the other ones that kind of stood out to me was that you do have to find the right methods for your personality, learning style, and schedule. So what exactly does this mean to you? I've been trying to be a lot more individual and more nuanced and more tailored to different types of people over the years. One of the things I see a lot is people make this, they make these grand claims about you need to do this and don't do that. And they're usually black and white, clear cut, and completely without nuance or personalization. And I, I don't think those do people, they don't help people very much. I think they do people a disservice because we're all different. And so a few of the things I've, I've figured out over the years, for example, there are different chronotypes, different natural patterns of when you're most awake and naturally sleepy. And for years, I always felt a lot of guilt, for example, that I, I tend to be more awake later in the day and late into the night and really have a hard time in the morning. But in our society, there's kind of this pressure to be an early bird, right? The early bird gets the worm. Um, there's, I, I think, kind of a morality attached to this. But one of the things I've learned is like, no, no, it's about biology, not morality. And I read a book called The Power of When, where he talks about different chronotypes. And I realized like, oh, in his framework, I'm what's called a wolf. I'm naturally more awake at night. And there's, it's not, I'm not a, a bad person. There's nothing wrong with me. I, I don't just need to try harder to wake up early. I just need to honor my natural chronotype. Now, there are things you can do to adjust it slightly. So now I get up at 7 a.m. instead of 10 because I need to for for my day job. But when it comes to language learning, I think realizing that not everyone's going to be the same on this. So a lot of people advocate, oh, learn first thing in the morning, you know, when you're fresh, in quotes. Well, not everyone is fresh in the morning. So uh, I think for people are naturally more awake at night, then you can do the bulk of your language learning at night, for example instead of first thing in the morning. Um, I do still think, quick caveat, I think it's good to have sort of bookends on your day. So even if you're not naturally awake in the morning, doing a little bit first thing, just so you, no matter what happens throughout the day, you did you did some language, you can check that off. But honor your natural inclinations. You know, don't, don't feel guilt about it. Don't try to force yourself into, you know, square peg, round hole kind of thing. Other things, I think some people really like communicating with people Whereas other people much prefer just to stick their nose in a book and and do things on their own. I think you can honor that while still getting the kind of practice you need. Because if you only read out of a book, you're never going to learn how to speak. And most people, we know that's their primary goal is to speak. But there are more introvert-friendly ways. And I know, Ben, you've talked a lot about in the past how there's a lot of mythology around 
extroversion that you have to be an extrovert to, to practice speaking and you're you know i think shannon too you talked about this as well you know you don't have to be extroverted to practice speaking there's a lot of ways that in fact actually introverts are better communicators that's a whole other conversation i think just being really honest with yourself about how do you prefer to learn doing that as much as possible and then just making sure that you mitigate your inclinations or your tendencies so you don't miss out on some of the things you you need to do you know for i know for myself i a lot of people don't realize i'm actually highly introverted i'm outgoing i'm not shy but i'm i'm much prefer being alone i much prefer reading and so i i know that for myself i have to sort of force myself to get out and schedule tutor sessions for example each week and be really like diligent and disciplined about doing that because i won't naturally do that but most of the time i i just prefer to do things uh mostly alone um, which is okay. You can still get a lot of listening practice and get a lot of reading practice. You know, those ways I mentioned earlier, kind of the anywhere immersion methods. There's no excuse to not have the language coming into your brain pretty much 24 seven if you go about it right. Yeah, you can definitely fill your life with the language. And something you said earlier that I, I, I like the sound of is uh, your motto of fun gets done. I'd love for you to expand on that a little bit because there's a, a, certainly a balance there that, you know, there there are some materials that we have to use that are sometimes a little dry that are likely to help us push forward. But at the same time, if we're just having fun in the language, then that's not that's not going to be as useful either. So like, how do you strike that balance? And can you give some suggestions for people that may not have considered for fun ways that are very directly going to help improve their language skills? First, I should say, I, I stole that fun gets done quip from Katsumoto from all Japanese all the time. I didn't invent it, but I think it's just a good one. And he's not active anymore. So I want to, I'm, I'm trying to carry on the legacy a little bit. So Kats, if you're out there, thanks, bro. I think the most important thing to make learning more fun is choosing topics that you're genuinely interested in. I think a lot of people, they, they think, oh, I need to learn about stuff that's quote unquote important or somehow makes me more erudite. Like I need to read about high finance or politics or whatever. It's like, if you like those things, go for it. But if you would not read or listen to content about those topics in your native language, then don't force yourself to do it in the foreign language, at least not in the beginning. Obviously, it depends on what you want to do with the language. If you need that for your job, then fine. Um, but whenever possible, just follow the fun, follow your bliss as Joseph Campbell, the comparative mythologist advised his students, you know, follow your bliss, what lights you up, um, and do that as much as you can. Now, to your point, Benny, not everything is going to be fun that you need to do for language. You know, at some point you're going to have to figure out, for example, in a language like Spanish, you're going to have to figure out how to conjugate verbs. You're going to have to figure out, you know, if this word is feminine or masculine, and that, that isn't necessarily going to be fun or as fun as, as other things, but there are ways to make it more fun. One thing that comes to mind when you are trying to learn the gender, the grammatical gender uh, of nouns is to make it highly visual in your brain. Imagine really wild, crazy stories. It's almost like watching a movie in your head instead of just staring at the word on a piece of paper and trying to remember, oh, is that masculine or feminine, masculine or feminine? Um, I think it was Gabriel Weiner from Fluent Forever. He suggests in your mental stories of adding some kind of visual component to remember each. I, I don't remember what exactly what he said for each, but for example, you can make feminine, I think, was it something on fire? And then things that were masculine, you had them be made of wood, something like that. You make something very, very visual, something 
you know, kind of dynamic and, and vivid. And that just makes it more fun, makes it more interesting. The, a big part of, of why I advocate fun so much, it's not just that it makes it more enjoyable, though that's a big part of it. It actually makes it more memorable. Our brains are not going to waste the energy encoding new memories unless the brain, not, not your conscious mind, but your actual brain, if it doesn't think it's really important, it's not going to use valuable cognitive resources to create new connections or add more layers of myelin, which is this fatty tissue that goes around your nerve fibers. It makes connections fire faster. That's actually, if you want to look at a biological level, that's how we learn things. It isn't so much the connections as it is the the insulation. It's going from like dial up to high speed broadband. And your brain won't do that unless it thinks it's really important. And one of the signals that you give that this is important is emotional connection, emotional content. So when you have a really like terrifying experience, you remember it your whole life. And the reason is because your brain's like, ah, that must be important. We don't want to forget that. Or if something's really, really fun or exciting. I mean, the the first time that you see the person you end up dating or marrying, for example, you're going to remember that your whole life because it was, you know, full of so much excitement and interest. And so trying to do that in your foreign language too, as much as you can, which again, goes back to choosing materials you love and surrounding yourself in the environment with the target language in ways that are fun to you, you know, back to learning things like martial arts or doing classes, things that you, you want to genuinely learn. And that will make it more memorable, more enjoyable, and just a lot more efficient. So you've basically run like the gamut of the language sphere, having been a language teacher, being a language learner, and now being a language mentor. So can you talk a little bit about your experience teaching in Japan and how you essentially evolved from learner to mentor? It has been quite a journey. And I've kind of gone back and forth between those those different modes uh, multiple times. In university, I, I did um, TESOL, teaching English to speakers of other languages. And so as part of that, I started training to be a teacher while I was still learning languages too. And so it was really interesting then to see both sides of the coin. And and that was also where I really, I felt really validated because in TESOL, a lot of the ways they advocate teaching languages, I realized were completely diametrically opposed to how Japanese was being taught to me as a student. Even to this day, Japanese tends to be taught in a very, very, I would argue, outdated, ineffective way most places, as are many other languages. But I think Japanese in particular, because of a lot of cultural reasons, things tend not to change very quickly. And people tend not to question people in positions of authority. So it's a it's a very slow ship to turn. But I've tried to remember that experience as the learner as much as I can while teaching or writing about languages or coaching learners. Try to remember that because the longer you do something, the harder it is to remember what it's like to be an absolute beginner. And in fact, because of that, I will often start learning new languages as a complete beginner to try to remember that. Just yesterday, actually, I started learning Turkish. Completely zero, you know, absolute beginner. I, I did not know a single word of Turkish other than cognates, which I'm sure there are some. It's a good reminder just to remember what it's like to be a complete beginner. I really enjoy those different modes because they all reinforce each other. And you you see things as a teacher that you might not see as a learner and vice versa. And as people often say, the best way to learn something is actually to teach it. And so I often notice when I'm, I'm trying to teach a principle or teach a specific part of the language that it'll solidify for me in a way, it'll crystallize in a way that I, it hadn't quite before. And so that's actually a really good, I think, advan- or a suggestion that I have for even newer learners, even if you're just 
starting out in a language, try explaining one part of that language to your partner or a friend, even if you just learned it that day. Try to say, oh, today I learned that X is the case in this language. And as you are communicating that out loud, there's this really interesting phenomenon that happens where, as I just said, it'll sort of like solidify, it'll congeal in a way that it wouldn't if you just kept it inside your head. You you were just saying that you were, you oscillated between this life of learning the language and then becoming somebody who helps and coaches others in their process of learning a language. And along that journey, you've actually written two books, Master Japanese and Master Mandarin. What helped you come to the decision that it was time to write a book and especially two of these very epic, big language books? And what was that writing process like in creating it? Master Japanese came about in 2010. And I don't remember exactly when I decided to to write it. I think it was mostly just that I always wanted to write a book. And I, as much as I loved the formatting of the format of, of a blog and been able to sort of have serial thinking and writing, I do think there's power in having things condensed into one format, one place. And the process of creating a book, I think, really forces you to crystallize, condense, rethink, reevaluate things in a much more clear way. And so I'm really glad I did it. It, as anyone who knows who's written a book, it's always way, way, way more time and effort than you'd ever imagine. And that's probably good. I think if anyone knew what's involved, they'd never do it. It's just like starting a, a business or starting a family. I think if people knew actually what's involved, our species wouldn't exist and there would be no businesses or no books and no movies. But I'm really glad I did. And I've actually then gone on and updated them multiple times. I actually just released the 10th edition of Master Japanese this last November. It, there is a bit of, I think, masochism in the process because you, know, you do it and you're like, oh, that was so hard. That took way long. I'm never going to do that again. And then you know, a few months later, you're like, okay, what's, what's the next book? And as you said, these are, these are massive. I mean, I think Master Japanese clocks in about 800 pages. And that's just the, the main book. There are companion guides that go with it. And so I think in aggregate, it's, it's many thousands of pages. But I don't necessarily think that the length of a book is a good or a bad thing. Uh, I think a book should be as long as it needs to be to do what it needs to do. And in this case, the reason it is so long is a big part of the guides are providing specific resource recommendations you know, long, long lists of like, here's a bunch of Japanese podcasts, for example, here's Japanese anime series, here's movies, here are books to read. And so you can know exactly what to use to create that anywhere immersion environment I talked about earlier, because that's often the problem. People say, oh, yeah, immerse yourself in the language. It's like, okay, great. But how, you know, what do I actually use? And yes, you can just go online and look, but having done that myself, it, it takes a lot of time. And so I'm trying to create as direct of a path as possible from knowing, okay, I need to immerse myself. And now I know I can do it at home. How do I actually do it? And so removing that friction as much as possible, what I've done. I do plan to actually create a course version because I, as much as I love books, I, I know that a lot of people now are, are moving to more of a course model, which I think has a lot of advantages for the learner. Seeing an 800 page book, whether it's the physical one or a, a PDF on your computer can be really intimidating. And I think there's a big advantage of, of having things broken down into more of a module format where you can ding off one small chunk each day and get some momentum. So that's in the works. That's coming soon. So I have a little bit of a selfish question. And I think you also could have predicted that this one is coming. And so I'm really glad that we got onto the subject of books because you and I are both kind of Goodreads junkies. Is it okay if I call you that? <laughs> 
So what would you say your top three recommendations of must-reads are? They don't necessarily have to be language-related. They can just be some sort of learning theory or just life theory that like helps language learners. Oh, that's a hard question, actually. There are so many, so many good ones. I actually think probably some non-language-specific ones can be the most insightful because I think people that are already listening to this or in this world, they've probably already heard a lot of the the language specific advice. They're probably already trying a lot of it. So I, I actually try to bring in a lot of this into my own writing and speaking or sort of these other modalities from other worlds. So I already mentioned things like sleep, things like chronotypes, other frameworks. I really like Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies book and figuring out what sort of tendency you are. So she has four tendencies. These are about how you respond to external and internal expectations. And so knowing this about yourself can actually help a lot in how you set up your environment and set up your habits. So the four tendencies are just really quickly, there's questioner, rebel, upholder, and obliger. I'm a questioner. So I question things. I always want to know why. And so for language applications, I'm only going to use a material if I think it makes sense to me. I'm only going to do a method that I think makes sense to me. And that probably explains a lot about why a formal classroom environment has typically not been as ideal for me, because I, I look at what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we're doing it. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Rebels, they rebel. The, the joke is, you can't make me and neither can I. <laughs> and so you'd think like, oh, if I'm a rebel, I can't, I'm not going to ever be able to stick to a habit because I'm just going to rebel against it. But rebels actually have a secret superpower. They are extremely motivated by identity. So if you are a rebel and you want to learn a language, the key is making language learning, using languages, a part of who you are, a part of your self-identity. You know, I am a language learner. I am somebody who spends time learning languages every single day, no matter what. And once you get that, then you're off to the races. Obligers, they will usually only do things if other people are expecting them to do it or relying them to do it. So I think they're, I think Gretchen Rubin said their slogan is I'm relying on you to rely on me. And so pretty simple there. You just, you need a buddy, you need a study buddy. You need somebody else who either you're learning with, maybe it's a tutor or a teacher, or you need somebody else learning that same language and you two kind of check in with each other and have either daily or weekly check-ins uh, to, to make sure that you're staying on track. You know, end of the day, have a, a set time on the calendar, call each other up and say, Hey, did you do those five habits you said you're going to do today? Yes, yes, no, yes. Cool. That's it. Just knowing you're going to have that check-in actually is usually all an obliger needs to, to be more consistent. Then the upholder, they kind of don't really need any help, to be honest, because once they decide they're going to do something, they just do it. These are the people that we all love to hate, because <laughs> if you're not one of those, it's really frustrating. So they're like, oh, I'm going to run every day, and I'm going to spend two hours every day on languages. They just do it. They're the ones who actually stick to their New Year's resolutions without much effort, because they just decide to do it. I will say for, for the upholder type they do tend to do better with a more formal classroom or textbook approach to languages just because there are clear expectations. That's their thing. They want expectations clearly stated and delineated. Like, what am I supposed to do to win, as it were? So anyway, that's one example. Four Tendencies, a uh, great book. Another one, Atomic Habits from James Clear. I'm sure most people have heard of that or have probably already read it, but that's one I go back to again and again and again. I just think so much about learning language is actually about habit formation. So really, really highly recommended. He's really, really good at talking about how to engineer your environment to make habits more automatic, which I've already talked a lot about how important your environment is. And so things like making the cues really, really, really obvious and visual. And so for a language application, making sure that you know, if you want to be reading 
more in your target language. Make sure that the book you're going to read is right by your, you know, right by your reading stand where you read. Make sure it's right there, top of the stack, so you see it. And so when you see it, that's the cue to do it. Or tying, you know, cues don't have to only be visual. They can be times of day. They can be tied to other activities. There's something called habit stacking, where, you know, every time you do X activity, you then do Y activity. And so it could be every time I brush my teeth, I'm going to be playing a Japanese podcast. So then I see the toothbrush and I start brushing and then my brain goes, aha, Japanese podcast time. I don't even have to think about it. Uh, so that's another one, Atomic Habits. And probably third, it's actually another Gretchen Rubin book and another habit related book is Better Than Before. There's a lot of overlap with Atomic Habits, but a, there's a lot of uh, really good principles in there that I highly recommend. I mentioned earlier the strategy of convenience and inconvenience. That's from Better Than Before. But those are probably my top three. If I had to make language specific recommendations, I, I don't think I'd recommend one particular book, but I would advocate picking level appropriate stories. I think reading stories, learning through stories uh, is a really powerful. Having a narrative, having a desire to understand what's going to happen next, that can help a lot with motivation to keep reading. I say that out of one side of my mouth, but then out of the other side, I know for myself, again, honor thyself, I'm a total nonfiction junkie. I've tried so many times to try reading fiction. And I, I, I always struggle. I, I just, I like nonfiction. And so I tend to read nonfiction in my target languages too, on topics that I love. But I do think there is some advantage of the story and narrative format. And so if you do like stories, and I think most people do, most people do read a lot of fiction, then yeah, try to find something, you know, Harry Potter, that's very uh, commonly recommended in the language learning world, because most people have already read those in, in English or their native language. And so reading it in the target language, you already have the context, you kind of know what's going on. And one of the really important principles of language acquisition is we only learn when we understand. This is Stephen Krashen's comprehensible input idea. And I think it's really true. If you don't understand the gist of what's happening in a book or a story, it's not really going to stick and you're going to get bored and give up. So you need to kind of understand the basic, not every word, not even much of the words. You can be able to pick out, you know, just some of the basics on a page, but you need to know what the basic arc of the story is to keep that motivation. And you've uh, alluded to the fact that like you're working on this version 10 of your uh, Mastering Japanese book. I'm very curious with all you've said and that, you know, you're taking um, all of this nonfiction into account in, to really steer your life in a particular direction. Like what are your plans for the next years to, in terms of expanding your business and your personal life? Do you think you might travel again to use your languages? Like what, what's the future look like to you? I would like to, to travel. I don't think moving abroad uh, again is going to be in the cards at this moment. I, I very much am focused on trying to expand language mastery into a proper business. It, I've sort of treated it as a hobby uh, off and on for most of the time. Um, I do have another full-time gig now. Uh, so it's a lot of nights and weekends that I'm, I'm working on the, on language mastery. Um, but try to be a lot more consistent, you know, at least posting a blog post every week. i I just relaunched the podcast actually the language mastery show. So I just had my first episode of the year last Friday, and then hopefully there'll be another one coming out tomorrow. Um, I think consistency, just like with learning a language, I think consistency with, with running a business is, is really key. And I have been less than <laughs> uh, consistent. So, so that's one of the things I'm, I'm really focused on this year. Um, in terms of language learning, I mentioned I, I just started learning some Turkish. Uh, I started dabbling with Korean again. I, I had 
done a little tiny bit in, in university. I had some Korean friends uh, at school, but hadn't really done much with it since. So I've started relearning Korean a little bit. Yeah, and and trying to go deeper and deeper on on Mandarin and Japanese at the same time. So it's sort of a two prong approach, scratching the surface of, of a lot of different things, just because I, I find it interesting. I mean, I'm a language nerd when it comes down to it, but then also continuing to try to maintain and even expand uh, my Japanese and Mandarin. But as I mentioned earlier, follow your bliss. I'm trying to follow my bliss when it comes to languages and and to keep seeing it as an adventure and not as a chore. Not as I mean, it, it's tough when when you're work is tied to something you start seeing it as work and I'm, I'm really trying to resist that and remember why i got into languages in the first place and why i learn them you know they're not i'm not learning a language just to learn a language necessarily i mean the ultimate goal as i said is probably for most people to communicate with people and so travel i think is often a good motivator which during the pandemic i know for a lot of people their travel plans got completely put on hold indefinitely and so I know a lot of people, even though they have the time to learn, it's been hard to put in the time without that motivation of knowing I'm going to be able to travel. Hopefully travel will open up again. And I do think having travel plans in place can be a really powerful motivator. Even going as far as buying a ticket somewhere, hopefully refundable, but having that ticket in hand for a foreign country, I think can be the extra little push that a lot of people need to put in the time every day. Because you know, okay, I just spent a thousand dollars or whatever it is to go to this place. I don't want to waste that money when I get there and not be able to communicate with people. So I'm going to, I'm going to start putting that time in now so that when I do get there, whenever that happens to be, I can hit the ground running. All right. One final question for you. It's a question we like to ask all the guests on the podcast, given that it's a language hacking podcast. And that is, what is your definition of language hacking? I tend to think of hacking as just trying to remove inefficiency remove waste. And I personally think the most effective hack, if you want to call it that, from the definition of removing waste and removing efficiency is to learn directly. And so much of what people do when they learn languages these days is very indirect, right? They spend all these hours tapping away in apps, dragging things with their finger on the screen, which can be fine. I mean, I, I think I don't want to you know, rain on people's app parade. I, I use them myself. I think I think they can be a really powerful adjunct. They can be a nice seasoning on the top of your meal, as it were. But the meal itself should be focused directly on practicing listening, speaking, reading, and writing. Because if you do those things enough, then nothing can stop you. You you will automatically basically learn the languages. But so much of a lot of the most popular language apps and materials out there, you're not getting direct listening or reading or speaking practice or writing practice. And so, yeah, if I could say one, one hack, one last tip would be do an audit of your day and actually look at how many hours or minutes a day are you directly actively practicing the target skills. And most people will probably be surprised it's not as much as they thought or hoped. And then so try to gradually then add more and more of the, of the time directly. And probably the number one thing is get a tutor. Get a tutor, meet with them at least once a week, if not more. And then that is about the most direct practice you can get, even at home, even during a pandemic, you know, if you have an internet connection, then you have no excuse. Excellent stuff. So thank you very much for the very fascinating answers. Uh, we've gone very deep into this subject. I will make sure that links are in the show notes to all of your stuff. People can check out your books, your blog, your podcast, absolutely everything will be linked uh, over in the show notes for today's episode. But otherwise, thanks for listening, everybody. And I wish all 
a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. At the end of each episode, Benny and I like to each share a takeaway, something that we learned in our chat with our guest. And it's usually something that's immediately actionable, something that you can implement into your language learning right away, try out and see how it works for you. Now, for me, in our chat with John, there were just a plethora of takeaways. So, Benny, why don't you go ahead and start? So my takeaway would be the quote that he he was referencing several times, different books from Gretchen Rubin. But one in particular was this red carpet technique where you kind of present the ways that your target language can be in your life are so easy and they flow so naturally with how your day is going in terms of things like browser bookmarks to websites you are likely to use. You make sure those are in the target language, that your Google Assistant or your Alexa are set to listen to orders taken in your target language. Books on the side table next to your bed, the top book is in your target language. You just make sure that whatever you do in your life to make it as smooth as possible, you lay out the red carpet to welcoming your language. And that's going to make it just so much easier to make it a part of your natural day. So that would be my big takeaway. I would have to say for me, the biggest takeaway was what John mentioned about how he looks at all of these different resources and tools designed for other fields and other aspects of your life. And then he turns around and he applies that to language learning. So he looks at things about personality, about productivity, about all of these different domains. And he evaluates how what he's learned through those resources and tools and how he can implement them into what he's doing with languages. And I think for a lot of us, what we tend to do is look at mostly resources designed for language learners. So we're looking at language learning theory, how to learn, and then actual language resources. And it kind of puts us into this narrow track. And at a certain point, we kind of stagnate, stop making progress. And so by turning to these resources that cover other things, it actually opens us up to different views, different methods, different strategies, different mindsets that we can then turn around and use in our language studies to break through those plateaus or just to kind of revitalize or re-energize or anything like that with our studies. And I thought that that was just really interesting. And um, I think that's something that can very easily be implemented. So you just look at the things that you're looking at now outside of the language learning realm, what sort of books you're reading, what sort of like nonfiction documentaries or films or conversations you're having, and then see if there's something that you can do to take those things that you're learning in those other places, in those other domains, and try them out in your language learning. So that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast or the podcast in general, we always love hearing from you. So please leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. As always, all the links and resources and everything else mentioned in this episode will be available to you as a part of the show notes. Until the next time, happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pasco, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. 
find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.